Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Reddy. But my friends call me Spanners, so let's be friends. We are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. This week we have another magazine show for you to consume. We have a guest upload to end the show on. Brad Philpott has launched a new YouTube feature called through the visor where he answers some driving based questions from the previous race so we're going to share an episode of that here on the main missed apex feed and we're going back in time to the 80s we've got jeff o'boyle back with another historic teammate battle this time it's prost versus senna but to start the show off this week i'm absolutely delighted to be joined in the shed by the f1 stat man Sean Kelly. Have you ever wondered, how does Crofty know that this is the fourth race where a left-handed driver has won a race within four days of fighting a moose? Well, the answer to that question is Sean Kelly. Welcome back to the shed, Sean. I'm glad you particularly appreciated the moose stat. That was uh, one of my proudest moments here. Thank you. Well, thank you for welcoming me. Um, so they do take an awful lot of credit for your for your statistics, but I guess that is your job is that they've got things to roll off the tongue and you do this all around the world. Yeah, it's, it's very important because unbeknownst to most people who watch um, sports on television, it is very difficult to commentate on something and keep track of everything that's oh, happening yeah. in a race. You do need somebody um, as a spare pair of eyes uh, and ears in the background. So... The idea that something spectacular could happen in a Grand Prix and then suddenly, oh, uh, yeah, that hasn't happened since 1973. We well, don't have time to look that up because you're talking about what's happening on the racetrack. So, yeah, that's a, 
That, that, that's the excuse I have for justifying my existence. <laughs> and is that happening live? So, you know, something is unfolding and you go, ah, this perfect thing has just sprung to mind. I will forward that on. Yeah, it, it, a lot of it's done in advance, but then we also do it live as well. They, uh, all the announcers, I mean, there's 16 networks that use this, plus F1 themselves, um, plus some of the teams, plus some of the organizing committees. Um, so, yeah, it does happen live during qualifying in the race so we can react I mean, the main thing is, why do we care? Why do we care that driver A is leading driver B at circuit C on this date in history, whatever it is, you know? And the thing is, is because I'm a fan, you know, obviously I have a very, I like to think quite an astute eye for what I think would be interesting Mm. to other fans. So, you know, we could go on inanely about statistical categories that are of no relevance whatsoever. This is something that constantly gets on my nerves with uh, football right now, with expected goals, which to me is just that all that is, is look at the size of my algorithm. Right. It's look, I've got a massive algorithm. Look, worship my algorithm. Uh, and it, it's like, no one cares. No one cares what that, no one knows what that means. And no one cares what that means. It's just like, why don't you just say that team had the better of the game? That team had 15 shots on goal, they scored five, you know, Mm. we can understand that. And I always say in Formula One, keep it simple. You know, not your audience is not data scientists. They are race fans. Speak to them like they're race fans, not that they have to sit here and work at, go and work out what this statistic means. (laughs) Sometimes I do feel like the stats are having a bit of fun with this. Like Lewis Hamilton has never won at this track where two or more albatross have been sighted off the coast of Portugal. Like Sometimes I feel like, the more obscure fact, like you're sitting there giggling to yourself. Yeah, got another one. Yeah, I, I, I call those FP1 stats. <laughs> like something something to kill a bit of time. I love it. Early on Friday, Friday morning when we was like, okay, well, not, not much going on on the track right now. And uh, wow, look at that. Yeah, there's that seagull that we were saying. Whenever that seagull shows up, Lewis Hamilton never wins. Yep. You know, so you, you never use that in the race. I love you know, that. You get, you get much more to the business end of stuff. But when you know that if you're, if you're the type of fan who watches FP1, you already know that not much happens in FP1 and it's a good time to sort of talk about some of the other general <laughs> things that are going on over the weekend. So you just throw in a few of those stats on the side where it's just like, oh, well, did you know? Bloody, bloody, blah. There's the, you've got to choose the relevance of these things. You know, you don't want to be in the middle of like a fantastic battle for the lead and then suddenly come up with some obscure stat from yesteryear where you think, well, why are they telling us this now? Who cares? Um, so yeah, you, you've got to be careful. The, the analogy I've always said throughout my career is it's, if you, as a statistician, you're the ball boy at Wimbledon. If you do your job right, you make the, you make the whole thing better and you, the audience didn't notice you were part of it. Yeah. No, okay. Yeah. Get yourself. If you become the headline, if you become the story, that becomes a problem, but you did put yourself in the heart of the action for the Monaco Grand Prix. You were there on the ground. What were you doing there, Sean? Well, um, <clears throat> low key uh i also host for the oh. guests for um for f1 experiences and for a range of other people i do you know that when you see the fans going around on the driver's parade truck doing a lap of the track i do a lot of the blah 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 blah, blah and here's this that and the other um and um you know the guests in the suites i go and talk to them and i, and I kind of do a lowdown of here's what to look for folks in qualifying and the race because um one those poor lambs you know, after you've had a very, very hard weekend of eating and drinking and socialising, sometimes it's, it's, it's possible to lose track of what actually is happening on the racetrack in a way that you wouldn't if you were sitting on your sofa. Because when you're... Yeah, Sean, a lot of people were incensed at Miami when they did the shots of the pool and there are people in the pool during the Grand Prix. Like, the race is happening. They've lost track of the fact there's a race on. 
Right, right. Hopefully they weren't in the marina because that would have been something seriously gone wrong in Miami. Yeah, not the fake marina. Um, yeah. Not the fake marina. But um, <laughs> so what I do is I'll, I'll go in and I'll say, all right, folks, here's what we're doing. I know you've, you've, you've probably enjoyed the hospitality. Let's talk business. This is what's going on at the racetrack right now. This is what I want you to look for. And I'll do that right before the cars go on the track for qualifying in the race. So it's like, okay, now I feel like I know everything there is to know. I'm going to go out there and really, really know um, what to look for. In Monaco, I was doing that. It was an extraordinary weekend in Monaco. So we had so many places that we had to do it from. I did FP3 from the Omano Penthouse, which is the building that overlooks Sandovot. So I was on the oh, rooftop nice. of that building. And um, if you go to my Instagram humble brag page, I mean, humble bragtogram, <laughs> we should call it really. I took a, an amazing panorama because even I was like, wow, like I've never seen it from up here before. Like I can see three quarters of the racetrack from this, from this really? uh, balcony. So you can, you can see a- the start finish straight and then up, the, yeah. up to Casino Square. All the way up to Massenet, and then I could see them coming out the tunnel and coming all the way around wow. the back and the swimming pool complex. It was it's like watching scale electric. Somebody somebody up there said it's like watching scale electric. Mo- micro here, machines, like, yeah. Like, Get some yeah, binoculars. Like, wow, actually, what a great analogy. It is like scale electric. Um, so I did that. Then um, qualifying, I did from the Miramar Hotel, which is overlooking Tabac, uh, and then the Grand Prix itself, I did from the Sirocco, which is a very famous super yacht, which is used in the, the reality show Below Deck, which is a very popular show in, in the US. Um, and we were supposed to be joined by Heidi Klum, and that would have given me an opportunity to make up for an incident uh, 19 years ago at a racetrack where she was stood literally right over my shoulder, and I completely ignored her. I had no idea she was there. Did, wouldn't have recognised her anyway. Um, and it had always been a running joke, like hey, you couldn't recognize, you couldn't pick Heidi Klum out of a parade. Well, she's coming on the yacht today. After a lot of waiting and a lot of waiting, eventually she flaked because she was like she was on the starting grid, and you know. Phew. Why, why would she, why would she disappear from all yeah. that? Yeah, why would she disappear from that to come round to this yacht? So it was like, yeah, she never showed up in the end. But there we go. Maybe in another 19 years. Oh, well, okay. I mean, me as a, you know, as a, a, a hater of the Monaco experience from TV, everyone always says to me, you have to be there to appreciate it. So I suppose you're going to give me lots of anecdotes about how you had to be there to see the thrill of, of cars being held up by Alonso by three seconds a lap. <laughs> Yes, I will. Um, I will contribute to that. And I, I, I will say that if you've not been, I totally get it. I totally mm. get it is you knew when the red flag came out, when they could had free tire choice. Yeah, that was dry it. Dry weather. It was like, this is kind of come back in 45 minutes and, you know, the positions will be the same. Um, which is unfortunate. And obviously that is something that as a sport we should remedy. Um, Having said that, when you are at the track, and I don't mean I don't mean you don't have to be on a yacht or anything. You don't have to all this rapid stuff. You could, it helps. It doesn't <laughs> hurt. So obviously, you could be up in the in the cheap where the cheap tickets are on the hillside just to be there, and to be in that incredible situation where you know the the, the roads are open in the evening. The road car traffic is going around. We can walk on the track. There's parties going on on the track. It just mayhem, chaos in Monaco and it's all part of it it's like in a way that never happens at a real racetrack because it's all very orderly and organized Monaco's just make do and mend like you know just can I get through there yeah all right go through there I don't know if I'm even allowed to but screw it I'm going that way um and it's like that all weekend and it's amazing who you bump into and you know Mm. who you see it's yeah I I would hate to see it disappear from the calendar I accept that the racing in dry in full dry conditions does need a bit of a look but the event as itself, there is no equal. So I've got some listener questions, and I think Monaco might fall into the bracket of, of one of those. 
and it's a fat attack. It's, it's a great question here. Is there a statistic that can quantitatively describe the best F1 periods, i.e. average overtakes per, per race, average split across the field? What is this period? And what period was the most boring? I think that's a really great uh, question, especially for old sweats like us who've been watching since the 80s. But also, I suppose you could extend that uh, to tracks and where Monaco fits into that. Uh, in, into that, um, you know, we complain about it a lot. But you might surprise me and say, well, actually, Singapore has, has even less overtakes. But I think, should we start with the, the eras? I often think of this era, and probably from, I don't know, probably from 2017, 18 in particular onwards, as some of the best racing and, and overtaking in the sports history. Am I statistically correct? You are statistically correct. Um, it is without question as close um, and as occasionally as random as Formula One has ever gotten. Um, you mentioned the 1980s. Between 87 <laughs> and 96, only four teams won a race. I thought you were going to say there was for, only five for, overtakes. <laughs> for ten, no, no, for 10 years, there was only four teams. Really? Uh, Ferrari, McLaren and Williams won all the races. Wow. So now we have a situation where, you know, like last year, there's something mad happens and an Alpine wins a race. You know, these things can actually happen. Although I accept there is a hegemony right now of Red Bull, Ferrari, Mercedes, that, you know, yeah. that, that has been a with, thing. With lately. the odd McLaren popping up. With the odd McLaren popping up, but you know, it, it generally speaking is is those three teams. Having said that, the gap across the, the spread across the field is is very very small. Uh, there's been several instances, say for instance in Q1, where uh, first and being eliminated has been separated by less than you know 1.2 seconds. Okay. Now we used to have you know think as recently as 97, Jack Villeneuve was on pole in Melbourne in 97 by 1.7 seconds. It was 2.1 seconds yeah. up to Michael Schumacher. Mm. Um, Mansell would be on pole in 92 and he'd be more than two seconds a lot quicker than Senna, who'd be third on the grid. Um, so to have that now where it's the spread between the fastest guy and the guy who doesn't even get out of Q1, that is exceptionally close. And we do have much, much higher overtaking. Admittedly, it is the DRS era. And it must be looked through that particular eyeglass of history. Sure, yeah. These are passes that are not absolute last of the late breaks. It's more getting in position and hitting a button. And I do accept that sort of overtaking is not it, it's a cheaper form of overtaking um but yeah. it is overtaking and it is better than having nothing um in t china 2016 we had 128 on track passes that's the record um so it's uh, we've had that we've also had races with no overtakes um since um since we started since overtakes started being uh, recorded which i think was in 1982 i didn't memory serves me right we've had two monaco grand prix that had no overtakes 2003 at, uh, 2021 we didn't have that this week we had uh, something like five overtakes yeah, in the wet. yeah. um but uh well they yes, weren't on, right, they weren't obviously. on telly sean so you definitely had to be there to catch them they weren't on telly we were we wanted to tease you we wanted you <laughs> we wanted you to use your imagination like there's been an overtaking move back there folks. Yeah, yeah. just imagine what it might have looked like um but yes monaco unsurprisingly yeah. bottom of the list when it comes to on-track passes in the last uh since 2016 uh, it's averaged seven on-track passes per year, at least by by the start of this year. The second worst is Australia, which is why we had the big changes at the track this year. It averaged 14 mm. on-track passes per year. And the others, you know, usual suspect, Imola. Imola's very low on the overtake total. And and Singapore as well, though we haven't been there for a little while. Yeah. Uh, Singapore's not great. The, the really good ones, Bahrain is actually a great place to start a season because Bahrain tops the bill among all the tracks that are on the calendar 
this year. That averages 46 on-track passes per race from, from 2016 onwards. Uh, the next one, Baku, Azerbaijan, is next on the list. So that's another really good place because, of course, you've got that very, yeah. very long period of, of flat-out running. Interlagos is really good. Um, that, that's up in the 40s. Oh, and surprisingly, yeah. the outlier, the surprise entry on the list, Paul Ricard. Paul Rickard is actually very good for overtaking. You wouldn't think it was because people think of it as being a very, very dull location for a Grand Prix. And yet it is one of the easiest tracks on which to overtake. I'm really uh, disappointed in in Paul Rickard not kicking off with sparking because when we first went back there, like Nico Hülkenberg put off one particular dive bomb. And I thought to myself, if there was gravel or grass or a wall there, he would never have made that, that overtake attempt. And I thought the freedom would sort of encourage a little bit more more racing. And it's not quite sparked. And I, I don't know why. No. I mean, notwithstanding that you know, Verstappen caught Hamilton and passed him for the win mm. with a couple of laps left uh, last year. Um, I think that track was first held the French Grand Prix in 1971. And I've read the uh, contemporaneous reviews of the 71 race and everyone there was uproar when that track was on the calendar because they just come from clement ferrand and then this and is a Rouen. test track <laughs> and then they go to paul ricard yeah. and uh dennis jenkins if you, you get the chance you can you can actually read the archive online for free on motorsport.com uh, if you read the the dennis jenkinson article of that race it is scathing about how paul ricard is basically the most dull most boring racetrack ever in all of recorded history the end <laughs> oh, and it is interesting that here we are 50 years later uh, and we've got the same complaints mm. about it. Um, anyway, I, I want to bookend that point. Uh, the question also said, what was the most boring era? Yeah. Well, of course, that's subjective. I mean, if your favourite driver is winning all the races, you might say, I really enjoyed 1992. For me, my favourite driver was Nigel Mansell. I didn't even watch the Monaco Grand Prix <laughs> in 1992 because it was so boring. Mansell won every race that year. Then he didn't win that race. Yeah. Um, and from that day to this, I've, I've always made sure I watched every race. Um, it's literally, literally, Monaco last weekend was 30 years since the last time I voluntarily did not watch a did Grand Prix. Did you know Prix. the last time I missed a Grand Prix was the Schumacher domination era of the early 2000s? I did find myself tuning out of the old, uh, the old Grand Prix then. So that answers the question there. That was the most boring thing. So next question. No, well, 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 we just want to finish. I got, I got one more thing. One more thing. Um, you are right. Schumacher in 2002 was a very dull era. I think the only time, the only time all season that a podium, somebody got on the podium who wasn't driving for Ferrari, Williams or McLaren was Eddie Irvine's Jaguar, Monza in 02. Yeah. Uh, so that was really dull. Schumacher was on the podium in every Grand Prix that season. It's the only time it's been achieved in the modern era. Um, and of course, he won the championship in July, which is astonishing. Right, think of that now. It's unthinkable. Yeah. Um, the other time, mid-1960s, Jim Clark, possibly you know, rated the greatest <laughs> driver of all time. In 63 and in 65, his two world championships, he scored a maximum. It used to be that you had the best like six scores of the season. He yeah. had as many wins as you could have scores. So he could not have scored greater. And in 65, he skipped Monaco to go and win the Indy 500. <laughs> That's how dominant he was. So if you were... Even yeah. if you were a Jim Clark fan, you could say that was kind of dull. Yes. Yes, maybe. And I think I just want to defend DRS for a moment, if that's all right, Sean. I know it gets a lot of stick, but I think there's lots of forms of racing, and all the way from like karting and endurance racing and sim racing, where even though there's not big, heavy braking zones, perhaps the cars you know, can comfortably take more corners than, say, a single-seater at a higher speed might be able to. 
and you don't get a lot of passes and you are waiting for that one straight, that one opportunity. And everyone gets a lot of stick for saying, well, everyone just waits for that DRS opportunity. But I think most racers will probably say there's a lot of forms of motorsport and a lot of forms of, of tracks where you're waiting for that one place to overtake and you don't take a, a lunge through the tight, twisty section. I think what it does do is it, it stops people getting gummed up which used to always happen in the olden days of F1. I I know F1, I know DRS is a sticking plaster, but I don't think it's as bad as everyone has, has made out. No, I agree. I, it, the thing is, is Phew. if DRS were not there, I, I mean, I would go as far as to say that we would not, Formula One would not be as popular as it is now. This, this boon of interest mm. caused by Drive to Survive. Um, none of this would be happening if it was all after you, Claude, we can't get past. Yeah. There has to be an opportunity to overtake. And I, and I accept that it's not an ideal opportunity to overtake. We'd rather have late on the brakes, locking up, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but it is still better than nothing. And, and hopefully, you know, the regulations changes this year are the first step towards weaning our way off of the DRS addiction yeah. that, the, that we've had in F1 now since 2011. Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. But I, I don't know. I just, I just feel like... Um... Yeah, it's not so different to other forms of, of motorsport. And when those lock up Daniel Ricciardo, lick stamp and send it Monza overtakes do come along, they're still special, you know. But, you know, but do we really want a race f- f- happening more regularly, like where Alonso could just hold up a whole train by three seconds? That was a lot more mm. common in the, in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Mm. And I would go as far as to say that that would, that would, re- that would reflect the majority yeah. of Grand Prix were it not for DRS. Awesome. Let's move on to uh, the next question. I, I just love that any question that the listeners ask, it does come off the tip of your tongue. I would love to tell you that he's cheating with a bank of, of notes and uh, statistics in front of him. But a lot of this does just seem to, to roll off of your brain. So uh, John M asks, how do, do you have any statistics on how the increased number of races in a season have changed how championships play out? And later in this show, we'll be talking to Jeff O'Boyle about the, um, the 19, uh, 19, uh, 1988? No, yes, 1988 season, uh, with Prost versus Senna, where he was telling me, or will have told me, I've forgotten what order the segments are going out in, that it was a 16-race season, but only the top 11 results counted. They dropped five rounds. And of course, so now Correct. we've got more races than ever. Do we have any stats on like who's been robbed by these different formats? Who would have done better if seasons had ended or had carried on? Yeah, well, I don't want to preempt that segment, but um, you are right. In 1988, 16 rounds, best 11 races counted. That rule was in place until the end of 1990. And it used to be nine points for a win. In 91, they dropped that rule, increased the number of points for a win to 10. But um, yeah, it used to be a case that you get up towards the maximum score over your 11 races and you'd start to drop scores. And that's actually what killed Prost in 88 because mm. uh, he was leading the championship, but everybody thought, you know, if Senna finishes, you know, if Senna wins this race, even I know he's behind the championship, but even if Prost is second, he's the champion because Prost has to drop. It got very complicated. Mm. And that's why I was just like, just get rid of this. This is just, <laughs> it's going over people's heads. Um, great question though, overall. And, and actually there's a very recent example of how um, the, lo- the length of the championship has changed the approach. Um, only, where were we, three, four races ago, um, Verstappen was 46 points behind Leclerc. Mm. Then after winning in Spain, he was six points ahead. Now, previously, for 10 years, that, that would have been an insurmountable gap at any point in the season, whereby you would yeah. say, oh, okay, um, 
well, you're not, you know, once you're that far behind, you're not going to catch up. Verstappen did it in three races. So um, now, admittedly, that's less than two wins. But in this area of absurd mm. reliability, it is unusual to have caught up so quickly. And furthermore, in past seasons, the way Mercedes started the year, you would have said they're out. That, yeah, they're finished. They're out yeah. of this. Now you're looking at what 15 races still to go, plus Austria sprint, plus Brazil sprint. So you've got another 16 points there. That's the equivalent to a podium finish in a Grand Prix. So therefore, Mercedes are not out of it. And you can cite the example that Verstappen set by closing that gap in just three races. You know, both George Russell and potentially Lewis Hamilton, who's further behind, mm. um, can still be in this championship just because there is so many points still up for grabs. Um, need a little bit of unreliability on the side, perhaps. But Verstappen and Leclerc have both suffered mechanical failures in excellent positions in Grand Prix this season. So, you know, it, there's mm. nothing to say it won't happen again. So, yes, it has changed um, the approach. Conversely, you know, back in the olden days, well, Ligier, I think Ligier won the first two races in 1979 and never got anywhere the rest of the season. There's a fam- famous story, which I just so want to be true, that Gerard Ducarouge, who was the designer at Ligier, had the perfect setup for that Ligier written on a cigarette packet, a packet of Gitan, <laughs> which he then lost on, on the way back from Brazil. And, 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 and literally, they never <laughs> found the setup correct again if Ferrari won the championship. Yep. I, would lo- I so want that to be no, true. No, I've committed but, that to memory. That is true. And everyone who's right. listening to this, commit that to memory. I just said it. That means it's yep, definitely exactly. True. Um, so yeah, there, there are examples there. You know, you, you could have a fast start to the championship, but still lose it. But full disclosure, seventy nine, the weirdest. That's the weirdest championship format because the championship was split into two halves that season. It was like the best. It was the best like four. I forget the, I forget the rules myself now. <laughs> uh, like best four scores from the first half and the best four scores from the second half. No, and it got, why? Yeah. So. So it was like there was a cutoff point halfway through the season. So calculating who won the championship that oh year is like, whoa, hang on a minute, what's going on here? So um, yeah, thank God we got rid of all that. Yeah, I, I, I just I know it's popular to say to sympathise with the team members, and it is of course unfair if they're being asked to do extra races and extra weekends, and then their pay and conditions does not reflect that, and they don't have an opportunity to to job share. And all sympathies for team members aside. I do think this is better to have a longer season if you compare it to other major sports. Like it's most of the year, it's enough races that it anomalies don't dominate. So it's enough races statistically for things to kind of be competitive and, and settle. And and I, yeah, I love it. I, we don't want a season that's over by July. And I, you know, this season we've had a weird start. And everything is still up to play, up for grabs. There's at least four drivers, six races in, that are title contenders. Yeah, I, I do agree with you. Mm. It is it is definitely you, the the out. You're very unlikely to get a fluky world champion. I mean, that's part there of the reason go. why I said that's, last year. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's part part of the reason why I said last year Verstappen Hamilton was the greatest season we've ever had in F1 history. Never before had we had two drivers from two different teams so close to match run into each other several times so you know <laughs> overtake each other re-overtake yeah. each other and of course it all ended in that massive fight in Abu Dhabi but that's doesn't take away from the fact it was a great season and if I may add this is a not this is not a statistical note but a human uh, an ergonomics note if you okay. will um about the length of the season you know there's people like Franz Toast saying you know if, yeah. if you can't stand this then maybe you should get a job outside of F1 well yeah. I just flew um British Airways Club World to and from Monaco. And I'm, I live in California, so it's 11 hours to Heathrow. All right, bragging. And um, well, I'm, I, the reason I'm bringing this up is because normally I'd be in economy. Yeah. But I was in, I was in 
the front of the aircraft. Okay, that's still um, the, bragging. This uh, is definitely still bragging. bragging. No, there is a, there's, there's a reason I'm coming to it. Um, <laughs> because I jealous. said, if this is what flying's like, then I understand why certain people would say, if you can't stand it, then get another job. I because see. they don't yeah. fly an economy. Yeah. If that, because it was like being in a different aircraft. You've got all the room, you can mm. spread out, you can sleep, you know, you can all, it's, it's easy. Um, it's no air, you know, you're in the front of the aircraft, you can't hear the engines, you know, even the turbulence is less because the seats got better damping. So it's, I understand they do not live in that world where mechanics are in the back and yeah. getting really, really physically battered up by this length of this season. So it's very easy to sit in club world and say, yeah. what are you all complaining about? But you're, you're a football fan, aren't you, Sean? Or is this too delicate a time to talk about football and, and <laughs> Liverpool? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Carry on. <laughs> for, for the listeners, Sean is visibly shaken and uh, perhaps tearful. Sorry about that. Uh, but a good season, a good season for Liverpool, nonetheless. But if you well, remember, trophies, eh? if you remember, there was a time when the Premier League, you know, started up, and uh, at a similar time to British teams getting involved in Europe again, and all of a sudden we were introduced to squad rotation, and it was just, you know, they, this was the new reality of football: was you couldn't play the same starting eleven. Surely it's just got to be the same for F one teams. You can't have the same mechanics and strategies every single race you're going to have to start rotating them like like a lot of sports do well potentially i mean i would say that was more a question for people who are you know team managers and, and so on mm-hmm. um and i don't know how i don't know how that would be impacted by yeah, it's not um, a stats the question, budget cap <laughs> yeah i don't know how it's impacted by the budget cap as well and uh, you know there might be operational snafus that you get as a result of having to rotate people in and out and so on so yeah that's more of a team question but I do take your point. It is it, uh, what I don't want is is people getting burnout, and I've seen with my own eyes people are getting burnt out. Even after coming back from COVID, where we had this, all this period where there's no travel, suddenly mm-hmm. back in 2021 and now in 2022, it's like wow, it's just relentless all the time. I mean, I'm not going to Baku, and I'm taking a break because I don't want to go from here to Baku to Montreal. Like <laughs> it's a crazy, crazy travel schedule. But I'll have some sympathy from. Uh, for the for the argument of you know some some vocations are very involved and you know I was in a vocation when I was a younger man and I suddenly went do I want to be doing this when I'm 35 no nah. and I and I found something something else to do so I'm not, I'm not saying it's not beyond the pale that some sports and this is a sport after all it does require a certain level of of physicality, of involvement, of commitment, of of being away. And I, I certainly understand those pressures, so I'm not being unsympathetic. But let's steer you back to some stats questions, Sean. I, I like this one. It's a crashing question. And there was quite a few <laughs> there was quite a few crashes at Monaco actually from the uh, from the buy-in drivers. And let's see, this is from Tack who says, statistically speaking, who has been the crashiest driver? <laughs> and then he makes a jibe, a particular driver, which I will not include in the question. But I wonder if we'd be surprised statistically uh, at who had had the most crashes. And is there a metric for that? I wonder if the driver that you're not mentioning is in the answer to the question as well. <laughs> uh, that's a, there is a possibility. I don't keep statistics on crashes. And mm-hmm. here's why. It's, it's, it's subjective. You know, you, you, you can decide for yourself, like, did he crash it? Was, was it? Was he hit? Was outside yeah. influences? Was he hit? Was it because it was a sudden rain shower? Was it the tire was going down? You know, it's do I decide that was his fault or not? And that, then you can every every statistician in the world will have a different answer. You'll always have all different numbers. So I don't keep those numbers. But I would say just in terms of raw play, failing to finish, 
Obviously, you've got drivers who started like one Grand Prix and didn't finish, so they retired from 100%, 100% of right, their starts. They win, yeah. But if you discount that, if, you, if drivers have had quite a few Grand Prix starts, like Pierre Carlo Ginzani, eternal favorite of my uh, Twitter handle, uh, on my Twitter feed, I always try and bring Pierre Carlo Ginzani <laughs> into everything because he's the most obscure 1980s driver who was it. always there. I mean, he raced the entire length of the 80s and people don't remember him. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, he retired from 75% of his races and he raced all through the 80s. Um, Andre de Cesaris, a.k.a. Andre de Crasheris, people who love to yeah, think yeah, that yeah. he was a crasher. And he was a crasher. I would say that. He retired from 70% of his races. What? He retired 70%. Um, and he raced 200 and... 210, 210 Grand Prix, I think it was. Wait, wait, wait. Um, he crashed out of 70% of 210 Grand Prix. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, like I, so I almost it, it, don't I almost don't believe you. That's in ni- in 1987, and I maybe even in 86 as well. Um because I haven't I haven't looked. So I, I, somebody looked this up for yeah. me. <laughs> in 86 he was with Minardi, and 87 he was with Brabham. And if, if memory serves me right, he didn't actually reach the flag in either of those years. I know he definitely didn't in 87. Oh my God. What? He never got to the checkered flag, but he was on the podium. Here's the weird thing. He was on the podium at Spa. Okay. The car ran, out of, car ran out of fuel on the last lap. And uh, he was a lap ahead. You know, the top three was a lap ahead. So he, the, the guy in fourth didn't come ahead. So he was oh. on the podium, even though he ran out of fuel. So, um, yeah, it used to happen a lot with the Cesaris. Um, and, uh, and surprise, the surprise number also, Rubens Barrichello um, had um, very high, 140-odd retirements. Really? But he also had the longest F1 career. So you mm. would expect, necessarily, that Barrichello would be high on the list just because of longevity's sake. Of, of the current drivers, it may not surprise you to hear that the person who has the worst reliability record among Mm. regulars for the last five years is max verstappen um oh, okay. i mean he's he's retired from 21 percent of his grand prix so he's, his, very... his early career would have been a bulk worse i'm assuming well i mean you say that of course he retired in bahrain he retired oh, in australia yeah. so just this season as well and the most reliable driver on the grid there was hamilton just nine percent of retirements in his career <laughs> so um yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't keep numbers on crashes, right? Um, but it would, it's fair to say that there, there is, there's probably a fair amount of correlation between drivers who have unreliability and drivers who end up binning it. Um, that, they tend to be related events somewhere, somewhere down well, the line. Well, you see, we can't tell like if a driver is causing the, the DNFs. A lot of that will be, be hidden. Uh, but I know like in 2012, people were throwing, throwing out, that, oh, Hamilton must be a car wrecker. That's why his engine keeps blowing up and stuff. And I know people have said the same things about Verstappen. I, I don't know if you can thrash a modern car beyond its engineering. Yeah, it's, it's much more difficult now, of course, yeah. because there's so much electronics involved. Um, certainly up until the mid, mid-90s, it was, it was much, much easier to have so, such little mechanical sympathy that you could break the car. I used to wonder about Johnny Herbert because he's had the most terrible luck. And, and there came a point where we I go, thought hmm, to myself, let's go. like, is it, is it luck or is it he's doing something with that car, which is fast, but also breaking it? Like it and I, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer, but it was always in the back of my head. Like, I wonder how much of this is actually just misfortune. He just said it's a terrible amount of bad luck. I'm like a, 
really like an outlier amount of bad luck. So um, it, w- it would have been more applicable in the 60s. And that, you know, that's what, you know, Jim Clark, for instance, 25 wins in 72 starts, finished second once. He would either win the race or the car would break down. <laughs> so, you know, that's much more, much more applicable back then. I think a lot of these drivers make a deal with the devil. I'd, it, Herbert might have done it. Certainly Hulkenberg, he made that deal. Yes, make me a rich, handsome racing driver forever, but you shall never be on the podium. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of that going on. <laughs> yeah, it, it's... Um... Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, Hulkenberg. <laughs> wow. How has that guy not got a podium? I mean... <laughs> yeah, well, w- how does he rate on the uh, on the, the crash stats? I don't suppose you've got that to hand. Um, he actually... He has got it to hand. He, he, he has a higher percentage. He has a, I don't remember off the top of my head. He has a higher percentage of retirements than does Verstappen. But I, I didn't... Uh, I didn't. I didn't bring sure. him up because I thought he yeah. only did the first couple of races this year, so he's not a full time driver. I wanted to just talk to about the guys. Well, we're looking are... at these seasons, drivers like Verstappen. I think he was a lot more. He was very aggressive in the midfield in his younger career. Like he did not absolutely did not mind just sending it. I mean, there was one where it, the, the one that sticks in my head is just sending it on Gasly, or, or, or he hit his own teammate in China, and then the next year I think he hit Vettel. Uh, just, just dive bombing down into that hairpin and he just didn't care. I think now it's been much more considered racing incidents and, and DNFs than just being out and out wild. But on the grid now, like Latifi started off just plodding along doing his own thing and then suddenly he's like crashing every other race. Schumacher seems to be out one in three races. If I could make a statistic up off the top of my head, Schumacher crashes one in every three races. <laughs> that might be true. He actually, he actually finished the first. I mean, his first retirement last year was in Sochi, which is oh, okay. the second half of the year. Mm. So he's actually fairly reliable, but it was a really bad car. So you know, yeah. didn't have anybody but, to race but, against. But, but he spun uh, in Imola, didn't he? Like fully three sixty, probably lucky to escape that one. They like he's had a lot of offs. Yeah, and he properly demolished the car in, in Monaco. And um, by the way, just bringing back, circling back to the Verstappen thing, he still dive bombs. I mean, think about the yeah. first lap in Abu Dhabi, which. Well, to me, it was one of the great overtakes of all time. And how Hamilton did not have to give up that position is astonishing <laughs> to me. But um, I would say that Verstappen's reputation for dive bombing like that has actually served him quite well. Yep, absolutely. I think, yep. I think drivers give him a little bit more room because they yeah. know they don't want to get sucker punched by this Red Bull coming yeah, and it's that, that early reputation. Even Hamilton, like in before 2021, was like, well, I'll just avoid him because, you know, I'm not fighting for the, for the title. That's fine. And I've said on this show before, when I used to play 11-a-side football, because I'm a, I'm a little lad, I used to make sure that I hit the, the other central midfielder as hard as possible within the first five minutes so that he'd go, oh, blimey, I don't fancy that much. And that would buy me like a yard and a half for the rest of the game. Right. And Verstappen has definitely bought himself that yard and a half. Yeah, and it's the same thing that Ayat and Senna used to do. It was always, you know, give me your space or we'll have an accident, but I'm not yeah. giving way. Uh, and, it, and, and it, you know, you can't look at Senna's career and say it didn't work. Obviously, there's some scandalous incidents like Suzuka in 1990, but mm. um, on the, on, for the most part, um, it was a very successful strategy. As, as regards Latifi and Schumacher, I think they're suffering from... Um, teammate rage you know because Latifi had settled in on the notion that George Russell was just very very good but then Albon came in with a little bit of a point to prove and the point is being proven Um, and same with Mick Schumacher and Kevin Magnussen Schumacher was sailing along was bossing Nikita Mazepin then Magnussen gets sort of plucked out of sports cars and put back in the car and suddenly he's six tenths of a second up the road in qualifying like hang on a minute whoa 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 and and you couldn't wish for a better marker than Kevin Magnussen because he's good but he's he's beatable. 
And so you should go in there and, and soundly finish ahead of Kevin Magnuson, and everyone would say, yeah, you're legit. But if you, right. if you can't beat Kevin Magnuson, people are going to say, well, you know, you're, you are not in that top level. Absolutely. And, I, and I, I admit I had my doubts about Mick Schumacher when he came into F1 mm. anyway, because he never qualified on the front row in F2. He did win the championship, which obviously is a significant achievement. But um, I always question single lap pace. I mean, if you can't qualify on the front row in an F2 car, you know, are you legitimately F1 material? That should be something you can do relatively easily at F2 <laughs> level. Sean, this has been an absolutely fantastic chat. I promise you, if you ever find yourself anywhere near near Essex uh, towards the end of the year, you won't have to pay for a pint at all. You will you will be a, a guest of honour. Uh, so if you don't mind, though, can we fit in one more question? Do you think? Yeah, go, you can put in 10 more if you want. Uh, we've got Scott Rainsford who says, the, oh, I like this, I like this journeyman question. What driver has scored at least a podium or or better a win? Uh, what, what, yeah, which, what driver has scored at a podium or a win in the most amount of teams and who has been the ultimate journeyman driver say with four or more teams i love this question because we really sometimes we only get to pick apart a driver's career when they move around and we see what relative success they have against other drivers you know did their championships perhaps flatter them a little bit metal or you know or can they sustain that across you know their whole career (laughs) (laughs) oh boy (laughs) Um, so, so podiums, podiums for different constructors, um, uh, Sterling Moss and Dan and, uh, John Surtees scored, scored podium finish for six different constructors, um, in the fifties and the sixties, um, Surtees, of course, going on to set up his own team. And I don't think, um, off the top of my head, I don't think he scored a podium in his own car. I can't remember if I'm actually a world championship. He definitely did a non-championship, but I'm I'm conflating the two. Um, and, uh, Sterling Moss won, uh, Grand Prix for five different constructors in his time. And he also took the first Grand Prix win for three different constructors. And there's three drivers that have done that. Uh, Sterling Moss did it for, uh, what, for, for, I think it was, was it Cooper, Lotus and Van Wall? Jackie Stewart did it for Matra, uh, March and Tyrrell. And uh, Dan Gurney in the Porsche, the Brabham and in his own car, the Eagle. So there are, th- there are three drivers who have taken the first win for three different constructors. Incidentally, there's another driver on the current grid who has taken the first victory for two different constructors. Do you know who it is? Uh, who has taken the first victory for two different constructors? Uh, no, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not very good at pub quizzes, Sean, so I'm going to fold under pressure. Okay, that would be the uh, apparently overrated by Missed Apex podcast, Sebastian Vettel. <laughs> okay, um, okay, because okay. Yeah, he did it for Toro Rosso, Toro Rosso okay, yeah. and Red Bull. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there is that. You could say, if you want to say he 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 was overrated. I mean, I'm sure you could find somebody who would argue it out with you. But obviously, no, I was being most, provocative, of course. Mo- most mm. drivers do win the ra- do win the championship in the best car or the mm. second best car. That's just that's just the reality of it. Um, as regards underrated drivers, that's Ooh, a much more interesting debate. Um, you know, you've got I mentioned Dan Gurney, only won four Grand Prix in his career. Jim Clark said he was the only driver he truly feared. In, in racing. Now, Jim Clark fears you. You must be a seriously good driver. Um, another driver who I randomly encountered last week while I was waiting for a burger in Monaco. He was the person in line in front of me, and that was Jackie X, eight-time Grand Prix winner, master of the Nürburgring, master of Le Mans 24 hours. 
only won eight Grand Prix, he was two-time world championship runner-up. You know, there's him as well. Um, and another one, well, Chris Amon, who, by the way, I think you asked who drove for the most different teams. Chris Amon, I think, drove for something like 15 different constructors. Really? It was, it was insane. Yeah, he, I think he has the record. Um, uh, he never never won a Grand Prix, finished second a couple of times, led more, led nearly 200 laps in his so career, never won a championship Why did keep wanting him at the team? Was he a paid driver? Um, I can't remember mm. now. He started out because he started really young. That was part of it. Yeah. He was only 20 when he made his Grand Prix debut, which in 1963 was really, yeah. really young, when the average age of the Grand Prix grid was much, much higher. So for a 20-year-old to be on the grid in 63 was exceptionally unusual. Yeah. Um, so I, go ahead. I, I wanted to ask ages ago with the, and the, the Cesaris, the, the Crasheris, mm-hmm. you were saying like, you know, 70% of his races he was crashing. Was he a pay driver? Like why, why were people employing him? Basically, yes. He, De Cesare, throughout his career, was sponsored by Marlborough. You, if you look at pictures of uh, drivers throughout the 80s and the early 1990s, you would often see a patch on their suit. It would say Marlborough World Championship Team. But it wouldn't be racing for McLaren, for instance. They'd be just be racing for whoever. You know, De Cesare would be racing for Real, which was a blue car. But it would say Marlborough World Championship Team on his, on his thing. Marlborough sponsored a lot of drivers on the grid at that time. Mm. And he was one of the World Championship Team. Thus, he had the funding to, to buy a seat. And uh, yeah, that, that uh, afforded him longevity in the sport. Right. M- might not have gone to other so drivers. So he was a walking advertising hoarding, but, you know. Yes. That... Well, so, I mean, so many of them are, of course. Um, but yes, it did, it did help him out. Um, it, I think it probably got him in at McLaren originally. And then, of course, Ron Dennis came in, who was not all that keen, um, because it, that happened after De Cesaris joined the team. Oh, yeah. uh, and De Cesaris was out on his ear. Uh, shortly thereafter, because he because he, he hired Nicky Lauda, which is ah, a pretty good upgrade. It's a good upgrade, but at least you know he would have been on camera a lot for the crashes because they would have been on there. And Matthew Carter, who was team principal at Lotus, has said on on this show that they did consider putting sponsorship on the underside of Grosjean's car to to maximize. <laughs> I once said that. I said that to the late Dan Weldon once. After, after, he, after his rookie year at Indianapolis, because he had a great run at Indianapolis the first year, the Indy 500, and it ended with him crashing at turn three and the car rolled. And I said, you put your sponsorship <laughs> on the floor of the car next year. I mean, just think about it. It would it'd be, it'd be brilliant. It would be on like, the front page I'd of the newspaper. I love one driver to just you know, do that race after race and just that one time where the car flips, there's like a little message right. on, the, on the barge board. And you've actually, the, thing is, yeah. the, the thing is, I'm not sure he found it funny. I think he thought, like, I'm sure it's great for you watching me going upside down at 200 miles an hour. I can assure you yeah. from my seat, it wasn't quite as funny. No, I'll bet. And you've inadvertently answered Daz the Gardener's question there as well, which says, who were the greats that didn't achieve the high stats? Like Dan, Jim Clark, Dan Gurney was a suggestion there as well from Daz. Yeah. And, and also mm. uh, one, there's another one I always put on the list is Tony Brooks, um, well known from um, the late 1950s, uh, won like five or six Grand Prix. Uh, just recently passed away. Uh, it's one of the most recent Grand Prix winners to pass away. He was the oldest, actually. He was the last uh, Grand Prix driver still alive who had won a Grand Prix in the 1950s. Uh, the late Alan Henry, uh, legendary F1 journalist who I worked with in the first few seasons of my Grand Prix career, once uh, asked Moss, Sterling Moss, who was your dream driver lineup? And he said, Jim Clark and Tony Brooks. And if Sterling Moss says Tony Brooks is good enough, that's good enough for me. That's absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for your patience answering all these questions and trying our best to make us jealous of your yacht in Monaco flying business class. I love that. Like, no, I'm not boasting. I'm making very serious points 
about the Thank future of F1. Very, but I'm I making very, very... But I wasn't business any class. Souvenirs, I haven't got any souvenirs from Monaco at all. Sean no Kelly souvenirs whatsoever Monaco, at any point. Uh, <laughs> Thank you very much, Sean. I hope you'll join us again in the shed soon. I suppose we should all go and check out Sean Kelly, Virtual Statman, on Instagram. Please do. And on Twitter, same handles. Yep, yep, you can find me and, and my DMs are open to be as abusive as you need to be. And also on TikTok, but it's mostly you doing a jump rope, which is something you've recently got into. That's actually a bootleg account. That's obviously that's obviously the fan club. It's uh, yeah, it's not me, but uh, you could tell it's not me because they dance a lot better. Sean Kelly, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure as always. And now we're going to go back to the eighties as we explore another historic teammate battle. <laughs> Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Now then, we get to continue what I am very pleased to say is a very popular segment, and that is our historic teammate battle segment. And to help me out with that, I'm going to bring in Jeff O'Boyle. Hi, Jeff. How's it going? Hello, Spanners. Very well, thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. Last time out, we did 2007 with Fernando Alonso and Lewis Hamilton. And I was not only familiar with that, it was still very fresh in my memory, as was the Multi-21 one we did with Mark Webber and Sebastian Vettel. But we're going back a little bit further this time. Yeah, back to 1988, 1989. So uh, for anyone who doesn't know, and I'm sure most of your your, your viewers and listeners do, this was the, the battle of all battles between teammates. It was Prost versus Senna. Ah, okay. So at that time, though, Jeff, I know you're significantly older than me. Around this time, I was like seven or eight years old. So whilst I have a, a shadow of a memory, I certainly I can't remember having lived it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's going back a little bit now. But since then, there's been an awful lot that's been written and said mm. about it. The, the Senna documentary, is, as good as it was, focused you know, largely on the, the, the battle between Prost and Senna. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll try and remind you of a few, few of the key points, if, if that helps. Well, obviously, let's just have a quick look at these drivers and how their careers ended. So in this teammate battle, it was a more experienced 
Prost and a, a young upstart Ayrton Senna. Ayrton Senna ended up with three world championships. All his championships with McLaren? He did. Yeah, he won in 1988, uh, 1991, 92. Oh, I see. And then Prost as well. So Prost ended up with four. Where did his championships come from? Yeah, so Prost won in 85 and 86, um, took a year off winning in 87 uh, and 88 uh, was Senna. 89 was Prost again, and then 93 was his final season. But as we'll get into a little bit later, Prost could have won one and arguably two more championships uh, during uh, the sort the, of Senna-Prost era. Uh, the could of, eh? The could of. So who's which team were Prost's titles with? Prost won with uh, McLaren in 85 and 86. And he won with Williams in uh, 1993. Ah, okay, fantastic. So to set the scene then, uh, we have a, uh, like we said, a a veteran Prost and this um, relative newcomer, not quite a rookie in the form of of Senna. Yeah, so that's exactly right. Senna joined Formula One in 1984 with the Tolman team, had had one exceptional uh, result in that race, which was Monaco in the wet when he was hunting down Prost, who, who won the race and it was stopped early. The feeling was that Senna could have caught and possibly overtaken Prost to win that that race, um, but um, that sort of put him on the map. Then he had a move to Lotus, a much more competitive car in 1985, uh, and then got this. He'd won two races in each of those. Uh, sorry, in in the Lotus, Detroit, okay. and and one other, and then got the promotion to to join double world champion uh, um, Ayrton. Senna, uh, sorry, Alan Prost. So Ayrton Senna now is revered by Senna fans in an almost, you know, godlike status. He's been immortalised in F1 history. He's seen by many up there with, you know, Schumacher, Hamilton, as amongst the very best. At this time, I can't remember if he was, was he seen as a a rising young star or was he kind of being brought in to to carry Prost's luggage? Yeah, he was seen as a a rising star and and something pretty special with a lot of potential. But the truth is that Prost was a, History doesn't remember it this way, especially because of the Senna movie, but Prost was a generational talent. He was absolutely outstanding, um, already a double world champion, meticulous in setting up the car, but but obviously incredibly fast as well. Mm. He'd, he'd, um, although Nicky Lauda, his former teammate, was getting on a bit, he dominated Lauda when they were team, teammates together in McLaren. So he was um, he was expected to win, but what happened in the, the first six races in 1988 was Senna took pole six times in a row, and that kind of woke everyone up that that Prost wasn't in for an easy ride. Ah, okay. And what? Where did, that's interesting talking about his prowess of of setting up a car and the engineering side. Is that that's why he got had the nickname the Professor? Yeah, the Professor, the Prof. Mm. Um, it's interesting that aspect of it because the the way the narratives played out over time is that. Prost was very good at setting up the car. Senna was just a better driver. He was faster over one lap. He had more more qualities by by a long way. Fourteen uh, pole positions against uh, um, uh, Prost two in nineteen eighty eight shows you how good mm. he was. But actually, when you listen to some of the interviews and read some of the accounts from those who worked at McLaren at the time, it wasn't quite as straightforward as that. So Joe Ramirez was um, a McLaren stalwart. He was you know a mechanic, team coordinator. He worked closely with both of both of the drivers during that era and what he said in an interview with Tom Clarkson in the Beyond the Grid podcast is that actually if if you had to pick one when the car was perfect and the car was set up exactly right uh, Prost was the better race driver he was the faster Mm -hmm. driver 
but and he was much better at setting up the car but what senna could do was improvise he could work around problems and mm. more often than not a car isn't perfect is it so you need someone who can can push that little bit extra and find an extra way to drive or an alternative way to drive whereas prost didn't really have that um, but um, there are accounts that Senna would say, you know, what's Prost running in the wing? What are yeah. his settings? I want to see his you know, data such as it was back then. And then he would know that Prost had set up the car so well that he would just take all of Prost's settings and then improvise around any problems that he found. And, and that's how he he dominated. But without Prost as, as a teammate, you might say Senna wouldn't have had the pace that he did have in that car. Oh, that is interesting. There's there's a few things around that because there's a there's a lot of drivers that have this reputation of being able to drive around bad cars. Uh, for example, uh, Schumacher, uh, Eddie Irvine's always saying, "Yeah, oh, I'm sure he th- thinks he was as good as Schumacher." But you know, he'll say you could break off half a front wing, and he'd just find a way to drive around it. He he was exceptional at that, and where you see that the big differences are the. the- the, the two legendary Monaco quality laps. So in 1988, he outqualified Prost by 1.4 seconds, uh, which is you know unheard of today, but was virtually unheard of between two mm. dominant teammates at that time either. Then the following year, he does exactly the same and uh, gets to, to to Monaco and dominates him for a second time. So uh, that's it's a track like Monaco where you see how good Senna was at driving around problems and improvising and taking risk and. You know, a lot said about the spirituality and all of that that he that he had, but actually, a lot of it I think came down to feel how how good he was at at at, at feeling grip and and um and pushing a car to the limit. Whereas Prost probably, you know, could be equally fast, but but needed everything to be just right for everything to to click and get the lap time. So is this around the time where there was the the mythical Senna qualifying, which I've always taken a bit of issue with, but where he said. I, he basically, I got to the the impossible standard, but then with every subsequent lap, I found more and more. It's like, yeah, all right, mate. You were just off pace a bit, and then you caught up. Yeah, there's there's a lot of mythology around uh, the Monaco qualifying um, for Senna in the McLaren eighty eight eighty nine. But in nineteen eighty eight, when he he qualified him by one point four seconds, he was leading by fifty seconds in the race, um, and then binned it at, at Portier, uh, and uh, and that was him out of the race. But what gets overlooked a lot in the, the sort of mythology of that that race is actually that Prost was stuck up behind Gerhard Berger for nearly for most of that race, so the gap of fifty seconds actually yeah. flattered Senna much more than than people remember. And whenever um, Prost did find a way past Berger, he put in fastest lap of the race and started putting in some really quick times. That sort of um, spirituality and being in the zone and you know faster and faster and closer to God every lap, all of that nonsense soon stopped whenever Prost started putting pressure on him and he binned it. So he um, he cracked in that race and it was a it was a driver error, no one else's fault. And Prost would later say in interviews, uh, a number of interviews, that Senna's obsession was not just with beating Prost, but by humiliating him, by dominating him. And, um, and that obsession actually goes back even to 1984. There's, if there's time, there's an, an interesting little anecdote that, that Prost tells about the opening of the new Nürburgring. And the f- sort of current and former Grand Prix drivers were invited to the Nürburgring for a, a fun mm. race uh, to celebrate oh. the opening of the track in Mercedes road cars. He tells the story that uh, Senna's flight arrived 30 minutes after Prost. So Prost was asked to give Senna a lift to the track. Gave him a lift, didn't know much about him. They had a chat yeah. on the way in, all very pleasant, very friendly, seemed like a nice old chap. Then qualifying came in the in the cars and Prost put it on pole. Senna was second and then Senna stopped speaking to him. Just would, wouldn't acknowledge him after that at all. 
in the race, uh, within half a lap of the start, Senna had, had run Prost off the road. <laughs> so the um, the obsession with with beating Prost was was apparent long before they were teammates. I think because Senna respected Prost so much and knew that if he was to be remembered as something exceptional, he would have to dominate against the guy who was the you know the best driver in the field at that time. Yeah, well, look. So thankfully, that was the last time they ever clashed on track. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was. Yeah, that, everyone lived happily ever after. Uh, but um, if we if we look at the the car that they had in 1988, the the MP44. And this is absolutely. their first season as teammates. First yeah. season as teammates. Yeah. yeah, absolutely dominant car. Gordon Murray designed first year with Honda V6 uh, turbocharged engines, limited to 2.5 bar, but but still you know incredibly powerful. And um, to give you an idea how dominant they were, they won 15 of the 16 races in uh, 1988. Okay. In Imola, the McLarens were three seconds a lap faster than the third place car in qualifying, which was Nelson Piquet. And they lapped the entire field with five laps to run. So it was. Um, a- I think my <clears throat> hearing might be letting me down a bit there, Jeff. Did you say in qualifying, they were three seconds faster than the next fastest car? Yeah, it was okay. three seconds a lap. Yeah, people it's, complain. I was about to compare it to like 2014 Mercedes domination, but even that wasn't quite that. No, it was it was a different era. Uh, was a, there, was, there was a lot of disparity, and we'll, we'll come a lot of unreliability as well. The the engines were were always on fire. Something was always on fire, but they um they will come to the the sort of uh, nuts and bolts of it. But there was mm. a there's a peculiarity of the point system back then that people might not appreciate, which is that. Um, there were 16 races over those two seasons in, in each season and um, only 11 counted towards world championship That's points. Mad. So the, the cars were so so unreliable that you were expected to retire five times in a season. Um, there were some teams who who aspired to only retiring five times in a season, but uh, but we'll see when we get to the, yeah. the points for 1988 how that that played out slightly. So that's that's yeah, that's something I had completely forgotten. In my head, there was a a one dropped round i didn't realize it was as many as as five so what they're saying is mechanical issues shouldn't decide a world championship and we can look back in very recent history and we can say oh maybe 2016 mechanical issues had a big uh, a big part to play in how the maths worked out but actually modern cars are much more reliable and finish many more races than cars of this era yeah, I mean, so, some of the races from from this era, this 88-89 season, one of them only uh, nine cars finished. There were points down to sixth place. So you get some anomalies mm-hmm. in terms of who finished in the points around that time. There's nine points for a win, six for a second. So, you know, it um, it does make a difference depending on which point, which races you dropped and which, which you don't. Okay, so let's look at the reliability for this season. I'm looking at the chart that Jeff supplied. I am not dragging this out of my memory so prost has it looks like two retirements and it looks like senna has one retirement of his own making at monaco and one disqualification in the opening round for switching to a spare car after a green light restart so there senna's made two errors or at least infringed the rules and then made a driving error and prost has had two retirements so senna's mistakes are just completely wiped out by this rule yeah, so if you look at it over the season, um, the, 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 in the 1988 season, Senna won eight races. So eight of his 11 uh, races well, that wins. counted were wins. <laughs> Prost won seven. There's very little in it. But yeah. Prost never finished lower than second in that whole season. Um, wow. He only had two retirements. But the way the point system works, um, because of the, the 11 out of 16, 
Um, it was very close. Senna won the championship 90 points to Prost's 87. But if every round had counted, Prost would have won that that championship by 11 points. Mm. So it, it's a it's an anomaly of the point system that so, Prost yeah. hadn't picked up a third world championship in that so, year. So that's by more than one race win because it was only 10 points for a win there. So that's like saying he would have won by 27, 28 points that season. So was that anomalous, that, that dropping five rounds? It carried on 1989. It had it oh, as okay. well. I can't remember exactly when they started to phase that out. I suppose when, when reliability yeah. improved, but but yeah, it was the same for for both seasons. But uh, 88 stands out as the one where the results should have been the other way around. If every if every race had had counted. If you had drop rounds now, let's say if you had five drop rounds now, you look at drivers like Alonso, who when they're outside of the top ten, go, oh no, I my gearbox is not quite. Oh, I can't pull the gear, honestly. No, it's interfering. Uh, there's interference. I'm going through a tunnel. I'll have to come in and, and box. I think half the grid would would just park it. Half, you know, a third of the races they'd go. Ah, I'm 14th. Sod it. Yeah, I think these days they probably would. And uh, Hamilton got a lot of flack, of course, for, yeah, for saying I yeah, would yeah. just save the engine, guys, and then went well, on to, to do pretty well in the end. It, it's, it it's would that. probably be a smart move to save the engine a lot of the times with these. I, I think overall, I think I'm I'm glad there is no drop round and f- a five seems excessive. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it does. Um, but whenever you watch some of these races back and, and you see how many cars are parked up on fire at the side of the <laughs> yeah. track, it's, it wasn't yeah, as excessive okay, as yeah, it might yeah, seem yeah. at the time. <laughs> yeah, no, no, fair enough. I'm, the, the most exciting thing about watching late 80s, early 90s F1 sometimes was just waiting to see if the positions would change due to a failure. So you'd sort of doze off and go, oh, wake, wake me up when the when when Burgers or Lacey's Ferrari conks out. And that would be like the most exciting thing to happen towards the end of the race. Um, but let's talk about the dynamic between the two. When in that first season did uh, the gloss of any potential camaraderie start to fade? Well, publicly... It, it didn't really fade uh, too much until we get into 1989, but privately Prost was already having concerns about favoritism or perceived favoritism oh, really? within the team, not necessarily from McLaren, but from Honda. So um, Senna had had driven the Lotus, the JPS Lotus with a Honda engine in 1987, had established a really deep relationship with the Honda engineers. It was already well established within the Honda family. And then whenever um, Honda joined with Senna in 1988, um, it, I've seen it uh, reported that it was the dynamic was such that Senna was a Honda driver in a McLaren car and Prost was a McLaren driver with a Honda engine. Oof. And, and w- when we look through the results for and the race reports and the races for 1988, there were those first six races where um, Senna had outqualified um, Prost fairly, mm. fairly convincingly. Then we get to France, and Prost tells a story around this time when he said that the way the turbo mapping worked didn't suit his driving style. It suited Ayrton's driving style much better. So they went testing at Paul Ricard. He fed back to the engineers at Honda how he wanted the mapping to be set up. They didn't do it for the next race. But then they rocked up at Paul Ricard, and suddenly the engine worked exactly in the way that he'd asked for it. He outqualified uh, Senna for the first time and won the race. Um, and he says later that you know there was a lot of perceived favoritism. There were boxes of, in, you know, an engine would arrive saying "special for Ayrton" on it, and, oh, and that fed into his. That's a bit obvious. Yeah, it's a little bit obvious. Who knows who wrote it? Senna yeah. might have written it himself <laughs> to wind him up. But yeah. um, 
he Prost claimed that at a lunch with the head of, of um, Honda Engineering in Geneva that actually they did admit that some of the younger engineers did favour Senna. And it, it, when you look at the later results in 1989, something changed because Senna's performance gap in qualifying just went <sighs> over a second. At Conspiracy. A lap. It's, yeah, it's, it's enormous. If there's time, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples of it, but it, it, it does tie into... Go on, go on. Let's feed the let's feed the conspiracy. Go on, go on. Where's the examples? Well, we'll get to in nineteen. Well, we may as well skip to this. In nineteen eighty nine, the the relationship started off pretty well between the teammates until they get to the second race, and then all hell broke loose. So this was Emily. Uh, Emily is remembered really for two things in nineteen eighty nine. One, the massive fallout between Senna and Prost, and the other, uh, an accident at Tamburello that almost killed Gerhard Berger. He was very lucky to survive it, relatively unscathed broken rib broken scapula some burns on his hands that sort of thing mm. but it was a horrible thing to, to to witness at the time but there was an agreement between the teammates that um whoever got the better start and led into the first corner would go on to win the race such was the dominance we've seen that in subsequent seasons with the Mercedes yeah. and, and other teams and yeah um so what happened at the start was Senna took the lead at Prost fall, fell in behind everything was fine until lap four when Berger uh, had the, mm. his massive accident the, the, the race was restarted. Um, Prost took the lead. He got the better start. And then Senna disregarded the agreement. It was no longer that important and challenged and passed Senna, uh, passed Prost into Toza and uh, went on to win the race. Afterward, that's the first sort of, of the big team order stories where, where it all went wrong. Prost went apoplectic after the race, uh, said that he wanted nothing more to do with Senna and then made a, probably a strategic mistake. He went to L'Equipe and leaked the story about what had happened to the press. Uh, Senna felt that was a betrayal. But interestingly, Senna's mind, Prost said that he, that, that Senna worked to his own rules and no one else's. And, and in his mind, he didn't think he ever did anything wrong because it was mm. always within his own rules, even if that involved driving someone off the track. And in this case, the way that Senna rationalized it in his own mind was to say, yeah, there was an agreement. Of course there was, but that only applied to the first start. It didn't <laughs> apply to the okay. restart. So. If, yeah, if you wanted if you wanted an agreement for the second start, you should have had that. That's, that's quite childish. That. That's quite childish. Uh, but look, the, the, Prost must have been irked from the first championship. So to, to sort of tie that in a bow, I've just been staring at this table of results between them. And, and Prost's results are first, second, first, first, second, second, first, retired, second, 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 retired, first, first, second, first. And you don't win the championship from from that. He must have been feeling sick after that season. Yeah, I mean, publicly he said he was very happy for the team and he already won two championships he didn't mind, but I'm sure he wanted to put things right in, mm. in 1989. Um, and that probably fed into the, the tension at Imola and, and, you know, possibly a slight overreaction to Senna just taking advantage. It was sort of like multi-21. It was the same sort of thing, um, although that blew up quite badly, didn't it? So, um, yeah. Well, they... so, so, so are you saying that, you know, they had a dominant car, but McLaren didn't want them to actually race because that wouldn't really wash now would it people would get very upset yeah it's uh, it's kind of the schumacher barrichello years again yeah. isn't it and, or massa uh it's um yeah it, it wouldn't wash these days but they were so dominant and it was obviously one of them was going to win the, the championship so they decided that this was mm. this was how they would play it out and, and did that did that hold so this did yep. this agreement <laughs> thing you know so there was no more agreement now for the rest of the season no more agreement, no more speaking mm. to each other, no more sharing information. A wall was 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 divided um, between the two sides of the garage. And this is where things really unraveled because um, 
Honda, the way Prost tells the story, Honda really rallied behind Senna. So they, they got through the next few races. Senna, I think, had had three retirements in that phase, that phase a couple of wins. Um, this is in 1989, so we're in, mm-hmm. in season two. Um, and uh, there wasn't much in it. They get to Italy at Monza, race 12 in the season, Prost leading by about 10 points. And he said that that was the most difficult weekend of his racing career. And he almost sort of retired on the spot because he turned up, he had one car and four or five mechanics. Seems fine. Senna had two cars and 20 mechanics. Oh, <laughs> so right. Okay. That race. In the end, uh, Prost won that race and, and he decided he was, he was going to Ferrari for 1990 to get away from Senna. And on the podium, he celebrated by dropping his bottle of champagne down into the Tifosi underneath the signal that he was coming to there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, not a, not a, a, a subtle way of celebrating, but, um, in that, that was race 12. There were 16 in total, so there were four to go. Now, this is where Prost starts to, in, in his interviews to talk about favoritism and, and that suddenly he rocks mm. up in Monza and Senna was 1.79 seconds faster in quali. And he said, yeah, that's a joke. He might have been faster in qualies, but it's a joke. There's no way he was that much yeah. faster. So I look back at the at the gaps between them in, in qualies for 1988 and 1989. Forgive me if you hear the rustling of paper. No, no, we like some stats being... But, being... Um, and it was, out. it's very interesting because you think Prost just making excuses, isn't he? He wasn't mm. as fast. Why don't you just drive faster, dummy? You know, all that, that sort of stuff. And you look through the, 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 the gap and um, in 1988, the gap over the 16 races was 0.44 of a second in quali, uh, okay. Senna over, over Prost. In 1989, it was 0.85. Um, so it's gone up four tenths. Yeah, that's a bit, that's not that exceptional. But when you start to look through the results, track by track it's, it's it's quite exceptional so there's hardly anything in it and then you get to the the, the sort of sharp end of the season you get into um italy at monza so you go monza what 0.3 of a second was the gap in 88 1.79 at uh, 1.79 yeah that's slightly suspicious and does that carry on then for the rest of the yeah. season senna just decided to up his game in the last few few races <laughs> of the season oh, yeah but this is when uh you remember uh, Prost was ahead by about 10 points in the season. So if you had any additional resources within Honda mm-hmm. and you wanted to to make sure Senna win, won the championship, this would be the time to, to deploy them. Well, by the time we get to Japan and Australia, there's no actual recorded results. No one scores a point after Spain. So it reminds us of, of how the season ended. Yeah, so what ended, it, it, the, the story of this rivalry is kind of a tale of two Suzukas, really, because in 1988, Senna stalled, started mm-hmm. in 14th place, within 25 laps had caught Prost and passed him in lap 28 to win the title. It was all very dramatic, lovely stuff, no no controversy. Suzuka 1989 was the first of the, the sort of two collisions that would happen in, in subsequent years. 1990 was the next one. So Prost was leading by 16 points at this stage going into Suzuka. There were 18 points left on offer, nine points for a win. Suzuka and Australia still to come. Uh, Senna had uh, had to win the last two races, as, as I said, to get the 18 points. He dominated in quali by 1.7 seconds, but but Prost got the better start and actually dominated the first half of that, that race. Senna stopped for tyres, came out, and the, the chase was on. So Senna had incredible pace in the second half of the, the race caught uh, Prost and then went for one of the most controversial moves in, in the history of Formula One at the Casio Triangle um, chicane. He was quite far back, made the lunge and uh, the door was closed by, by Prost. The two came together, Prost retired, Senna got a push start, 
went across the cut across the chicane and then went went on to win the race uh, and with it you would think the world championship unfortunately that's not how it played out and this is where the politics started to get involved in the conspiracy theories about uh, the French mafia and uh, not mafia in the real sense, but yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the relationship between Prost and uh, Jean-Marie Balestre, who was the the um, FIA president at the time. So despite the fact that in countless races previously, when a car had spun or stalled or gone off wide, they would cut across the chicane to get going and, and off they went. No advantage gained, clearly. Because uh, you've spun. It, yeah, yeah, because you've spun. That wasn't, yeah. Yeah, that's not, not, not really the fastest route to spin and then cut the chicane. But in this case, the FIA disqualified Senna from the race for cutting the chicane um, and fined him $100,000, uh, gave him a six-month suspended ban for being a dangerous driver. Um, so it was oh, a wow. bit heavy-handed, you might say. And um, if you were in Prost camp, I'm sure you would do everything you could to, to help. But it, it didn't help <laughs> you know, with the, the idea that there was, an, there was an impartiality within the, the FIA. So uh, Prost won his third championship uh, in very, very controversial circumstances. That, that's, that sounds like it's Abu Dhabi 2021 level controversial. But in the end, looking at the points total, it didn't make a difference as they, they both retired in Australia. Was that controversy free? Well, it, it did make a difference in the end, actually, because um, there were only nine points um, for a race win. So Senna would have to win a Suzuka and Australia if Prost finished second in each, each of those to win it. But having Prost out of the, um, yeah. or sorry, having Senna disqualified and Prost not finishing anymore meant that Prost still led the championship by 16 points going into the last round with only nine available. So it didn't make a difference to, to the result in the end. Uh, but you're right. They both retired in, mm. in the final race. Wow. That's... Um... That's exhausting and emotional. I feel like I want to go back and, and catch a little bit of that era. And then so that, that leaves them with Prost on three titles and Senna on one. And, and this probably goes down as one of the great teammate battles in terms of significance in history. Yeah, it, for me, it's, it's number one. Uh, I, I think it had absolutely everything. Two generational talents in the same team with limited team orders, I suppose. Um, it had politics, it had, you know, allegations of team favoritism, it had collisions on track, it had, you know, espionage off track, it, it had absolutely everything. And in, e- in each season that they were together, the two seasons at, um, at McLaren, it went down to the to, to, to a, a shootout at Suzuka in really um, sort of spectacular uh, circumstances. In 1990, then, of course, most people, well, a lot of people might remember that 1990, Prost had gone to Ferrari by this point and it went down to Suzuka again as to who was going to win the title. Uh, Prost got the better start um, and Senna just didn't lift to the first corner and wipe them both out, meaning that Senna won the championship. So it's, uh, yeah, it, the rivalry didn't stop in 1989. And um, interestingly, Prost said he didn't make too many mistakes in his career, but the, the biggest one he ever made was that uh, he was given the choice of who would be his teammate at McLaren and he said that Senna was the better driver uh, of the two that were in contention and that it would be better for the team to have the faster driver uh, in, in the same team. So he said he'd, he'd probably make a different decision if he was asked to do that now. Look out for number one. And also look out for Jeff on social media. Your Twitter handle is? It's Jeff O'Boyle one uh, I think, because I locked myself out of the original Jeff O'Boyle. No. Uh, You're like so. those guys who lost their crypto wallets. <laughs> yes, it's a down the back of the sofa somewhere, but it'll turn up. Yeah. Go and give Jeff a follow. The link will be in the show notes below. Jeff, thank you so much for another historic teammate battle. Thank you.
Ooh, I love me a little bit of recent F1 history. We've explored statistics this week on Missed Apex Podcast, and we've dived into the past of historic teammate battles. And next up, we're going to have some of your, your driver questions answered by... A, a very competent race driver who has a much better handle on life behind the wheel than the likes of me and Matt. So Brad has started a a new YouTube series called Through the Visor, where he just tweets out uh, asking for questions and then answers some of those questions, mainly around driver and driving focused stuff uh, and based around the recent Grand Prix. So there's a couple of really interesting topics about the Monaco Grand Prix, some of which we covered in the race, some of which we we missed. Uh, but I think Brad's got a great perspective. And every now and then, we're going to have a guest upload from this new, tu- new YouTube series that he's doing. However, if you want to catch all of them, follow the links in the show notes below and go and subscribe to Brad's channel. But enjoy the latest upload of... Through the visor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of Through the Visor. This time, reviewing the Monaco Grand Prix with your questions. We've had loads of great questions in this time because lots of things happened at the Monaco Grand Prix, and I can't wait to get stuck into answering them. For those of you new to the channel, I've been a race driver for 20 years, winning the Red Bull Kart Fight and various national series, before becoming a high performance driver coach at the world's leading race school for a decade. I was British F4 and F3 test driver, competed at the Race of Champions against current F1 drivers, and I'm a two time champion of the Nurburgring. Nordschleife. I now work as a test driver for a leading tyre manufacturer, driving on the limit every day at tracks all around the world. Right, so let's jump straight in there with the hot topic, the post-race appeal from Ferrari. Now, quite a few of you guys asked me about this. We had Courage at Marcel F1 asking, could you please explain the Ferrari appeal and why it was rejected? And this is really quite a simple one to look at, although the outcome maybe isn't quite as obvious as we would have expected. So in essence, whilst Ferrari were busy mucking up their pit stops by pitting too early and then coming out on cold slicks and wasting a lap either stuck behind slow traffic or just struggling to get temperature into their slicks, and Red Bull stayed out that extra lap or so on intermediates, effectively overcutting the Ferraris. Uh, Afterwards, the Red Bulls then pitted for their slicks and they were hurrying to get out of the pits. Now, from what we can deduce, both Red Bulls potentially crossed the pit exit line on their way out of the pits. That's the solid yellow line that you're not supposed to blend across. You're supposed to stay to one side of that. And in Monaco's case, that's the right-hand side of that until the yellow line ends. And that's obviously to prevent you from joining into traffic and being dangerous when there are other cars coming past at full racing speed. Now, we were actually running live on board with Verstappen on the live international feed when he looked to get a little bit sideways and potentially run across that yellow line. And I tweeted at the time that I thought that was a pretty obvious pit lane exit violation. Now, Ferrari pretty sensibly put in an appeal after the race because they thought, obviously, that they could get maybe a position or two back from this if if Perez and Verstappen had infringed this rule. Now, here's where it gets a little bit more tricky. The onboard footage we've got doesn't clearly show Verstappen crossing that line. And we haven't seen any footage of Perez. So we've only really got Verstappen's to go with. What you see is he exits the pits on cold slicks whilst the track is damp, gets on the power a little bit too hard on the exit or maybe just carries a bit too much speed at the pit exit, 
gets sideways, corrects, turns into the slide, but that obviously walks him wide. It walks him to the left. And at the very least, we can see from the onboard that he drives onto the yellow line. And we've also got some outside shots, some still pretty grainy shots from the car behind, showing what looks like him either driving directly on top of the yellow line or potentially slightly past it. Now, in the race director's notes for this weekend, it was very specifically written that in accordance with Chapter 4, Section 5 of Appendix L to the ISC, drivers must keep to the right of the solid yellow line at the pit exit when leaving the pits and stay to the right of this line until it finishes after Turn 1. Now, that would tend to mean you're not allowed to even touch the line. So it shouldn't really be an issue whether or not the car was fully past the line, whether one of his tyres was past the the edge of the yellow line and effectively over the top of the next piece of bare tarmac asphalt. It should just be enough that he touches the yellow line and it should be a penalty. But just to further confuse this, as Crofty points out on Twitter, the FIA's own sporting code states that drivers must not cross the line. Now, that seems to be a bit of a contradiction with the race director's notes for the weekend, which effectively implies that they're not even allowed to touch the line. So we have two conflicting FIA rules going on here, which is not surprising, but very frustrating because this shouldn't be the case. We shouldn't have a race director making a specific note which contradicts or at least makes it confusing to judge what should be a pretty black and white rule. So section 18.1 of the FIA Sporting Code says, no part of any car leaving the pits may cross this line. Now, crossing the line would imply that they are allowed to touch it, they're just not allowed to cross it and appear out the other side. And that's where it's unclear whether or not Verstappen has done this. You can try and judge for yourselves from the grainy images we have here, but this is really the best we've got. And I believe this is why the stewards ruled in Red Bull's favour, because they couldn't say for absolutely certain whether or not Verstappen had fully crossed the yellow line. In my opinion, I think it looks like he has. And it looked on initial viewing from the live pictures that he had. And Lando Norris was penalised from a similar onboard camera view where it was impossible to tell if he definitely crossed the line at Barcelona and had his qualifying lap deleted for, for being over a white line. And they had similar kinds of evidence for that. So again, potential inconsistency from FIA stewards, but we've kind of grown to expect this over the last couple of years, unfortunately. So next up, Arno Tine asks, haven't seen much of it on air, so would you give us your detailed look at the Hamilton-Ocon clash and subsequent penalty? Now, this is a really juicy one, and I'm going to explain why. Now, we were all watching the live feed when we saw Hamilton trying to get past Ocon whilst Hamilton was making the most of his new intermediate tyres. And there were a couple of times where he got a really good run, he was all over the back of him. But in particular, on the TV pictures, we saw Hamilton go for a move down into turn one. And it looked like he got a significant overlap. And to my eyes, Ocon just turned directly across on him. And we later then heard Hamilton complaining about being put in the wall. But we never saw that on the TV pictures. And the commentators just seemed to assume that they were talking about that first incident that Hamilton was complaining about being turned in on. And he then asked later on, are any of these incidents being uh, reviewed by the stewards? Now, I've since uncovered through looking through some different YouTube videos, the actual reason that Ocon was penalised. 
And in my view, both of these incidents should incur a penalty for Ocon. The first one we'll go into in just a moment, but let's have a look at the reason Ocon was actually penalised. This is what we didn't see on TV. Hamilton gets a run down the pit straight and makes a decisive move to Ocon's right-hand side and gets a significant overlap. He then just gets put in the wall by Ocon. Ocon just moves across on him and then later complained on the radio about his penalty, saying he didn't do anything wrong, he didn't think that was a justified penalty. And in fact, we can hear from Ocon himself in his post-race interview where he says, I went to see the stewards just now to review the images and there's a new rule that apparently all drivers agreed to that now when we're both alongside and when somebody's attacking, if you don't leave the room, then it's a penalty, which I never heard of. I'm a bit surprised by the penalty. I think the opinion of everyone is that it should be a racing incident, nothing else. So yes, all these efforts for no reason, we could have stayed home this weekend. Now I'm afraid, Esteban, I'm going to have to strongly disagree with you there because this is not a racing incident. This is actually a very dangerous driving error by you. You cannot just drive across when a car has an overlap. And the fact that he thinks this is a new rule um, is a bit bizarre. I mean, this is something that we all understand. If there is any significant portion of another car alongside you, you can't move into that space. In essence, you cannot occupy a piece of track which is already occupied by another car. This is just a fundamental of racing etiquette. So this is a pretty clear slam dunk penalty for Ocon, and he's lucky that neither of them sustained significant damage. Hamilton had some end plate damage, but didn't really affect him. And they both pretty much got away unscathed. So now let's look at the incident that we all saw on TV, and we can judge that one. So Hamilton gets a run down the inside of Ocon, um, has again a significant portion of the car alongside, as you can see from the still images, and Ocon just turns towards the apex as if there is no car there. Now I appreciate Monaco's tight, it's difficult to get two cars round side by side, but Hamilton had absolutely earned the right to be there. There was no reason for Ocon to assume that Hamilton would have just disappeared, and he again causes contact by just turning into a space which is clearly already occupied by another car. Now what quite often happens in these incidents is the car that's attacking, the car on the inside that is being turned in on, sees that there's a car turning in on them and tries to escape. They try and back out of that situation. It then ends up looking like they've made front to rear contact with that car in front. When in fact, what's really happened is they're the only one trying to avoid contact. And because of that, they end up further back and the contact happens at the rear of the car in front, at the front of the car behind, making it look like the attacking car has tapped the back of the car in front, when in actuality what's happened is the attacking car is just trying to escape damage and trying to avoid contact because the car in front clearly has no interest in that. So again, I'm afraid, Esteban, this one's on you. Chris Ratcliffe asks, how does a driver approach a section like the swimming pool at Monaco where you have to be right up to the barrier on one side of the car while looking through the apex on the other, also dealing with those rapid focus changes? Now, I love this because this is a real driving question, and we've used a couple of still frames just to try and illustrate what we're talking about here, but Chris is completely right. There are lots and lots of times where as a driver, you're not looking at the place where you're positioning the car you're looking at the next apex or the next breaking point or the next turning point. And around Monaco, and I obviously I haven't been racing at Monaco, I've never driven the streets of Monaco, but I have driven on lots of circuits where you're not paying specific attention to where the car is positioned because you're actually looking at the next corner. So what drivers are doing, even if they don't necessarily realize it, is they're looking for the braking point, first of all. So you're looking in the distance at the braking point. But once you know you're going to reach that, 
you then look for the turning point. So your vision switches from the breaking point up to the turning point, but before you've reached the breaking point. So your eyes are one step ahead of where the car is at all times. So you flick from the breaking point to the turning point. You're then doing your braking subconsciously effectively, and you're heading towards the turning point. But once you know you're aiming for the turning point, you then flick your focus to the apex of the corner that you're heading into. And your peripheral vision then deals with the positioning towards the turning point. So, for example, on Leclerc's qualifying lap here, on his pole lap, he is not looking specifically at the barrier to position his, his right hand, his right side tyres on the approach into the swimming pool section. He's already looking, and you can see from the helmet cam, he's already looking into the next corner, even though he isn't necessarily at the turning point yet. But this is just a natural thing that drivers do. This is just how you drive fast. You can't be focusing in all the places you need to see at the same time. So you get used to using your, your prime focus to aim the vehicle. And then when you know that aim is going well, and when you're going to reach that point, your focus has already switched to the next place and your peripheral vision takes over. And obviously experience in these cars will give him um, a, a good judgment of how wide they are and how much room they've got. It doesn't always go well. You know, some people do clip the barriers, but in general, you saw some really, really fine driving of all the drivers this weekend, pretty much judging how wide the cars were, getting really, really close to the barriers. And that's because they're using this method of switching to their peripheral vision subconsciously, whilst the main focus is on the next point that they're aiming for. Our final question for today comes from Dave Chima, who asks... So what was the reason Lewis changed his helmet during the race at the red flag caused by Mick Schumacher? Not sure that was asked of him post-race. Now, this is hopefully quite an easy one to answer because I just think it's because his, his original helmet would have been damp and horrible to wear. So Lewis went into this weekend with a special Monaco helmet design, which was based on his favourite crystal. And you can see here it's like a nice kind of white design with the purple crystal shining through. That was what was used at the start of the race when it was pouring with rain, when the drivers were sat in their cars, soaking up all that water, stationary, and then obviously driving later on with all the spray. And you've also got the sweat of the driver. All drivers sweat quite a lot, even in a, in a cold race. You're still quite warm inside all of your race gear. And having the opportunity to swap to nice dry kit is lovely. It just so happens that he only had one of those special crystal helmets available. I'm sure he would have changed to a dry version of that in the red flag period had he had that on offer. Um, but as it happened, he went to his yellow helmet. And I'm certain that's the reason why. It will have been a helmet that was more suited to the dry weather. He probably had a dry visor as well. Maybe uh, a visor that didn't need as much kind of double glazing to prevent the misting up. But if you are wearing a, a damp, horrible wet helmet um, in a race and you're getting warm inside the helmet there is also that possibility of it misting up so you don't want to carry a damp helmet into the next session if you've got the opportunity to change to a fresh one and it is really as simple as that so guys thank you again for all your questions it's been great i'm really looking forward to answering your post baku questions in a couple of weeks but until then like this video subscribe if you haven't already and i'll see you next time Very good. Well done, Bradley. Keep it up. Go and do more of that kind of thing. I hope you enjoy these magazine segment shows. We are going to try and catch up with Uncle Joe during the week. But if we can't, we're going to have a Baku mailbag. And in any case, we do love receiving your feedback. We are getting much better at 
answering those questions that are, are posed through our mailbag at feedback at mistapex.net. But I promise you something, we've always read them. So when you've sent us very encouraging and nice things via email, it has landed and we do very much appreciate it. If you want to encourage us to keep doing this kind of thing, we are a Patreon-supported podcast. So patreon.com forward slash Apex. For the lowest tier, you can have a, a special RSS link that you put in your podcast player and then you get the same shows just without the advertising. In the next tier up, you can get some extra bonus content, which includes, you know, uh, our doom scrolling show, which isn't strictly speaking fully F1, but we do relax a little bit and there's a lot of personal chat. Plus, we have a private Slack forum that me and the panel are are in very regularly. And of course, our patrons are always the first to know about any karting events like the one on the 3rd of September at Buckmore Park. Go to mistapexpodcast.com forward slash karting and come and join us there. I do think that this will be a packed out grid. So I think getting your ticket in the next month or so will probably be your safest option. mistapexpodcast.com forward slash karting. Come take us on. Come drive against the panel and test your wits against us over nine heats and three finals. You will definitely race with the panel and you will definitely end up in one of three finals. It just depends, you know, in the final, which is the bottom one, the C final, maybe you race Matt. In the B final, maybe you race Catman. And in the A final, sometimes, fingers crossed, I'm there as well as the likes of Van Jean, Philpot and Power. So come and check that out. And also there is a link in the show notes below to the video of how it went down at Ella Park on April 30th when we went there last. So I hope you enjoy that. But wherever we see you next, work hard, be kind and have fun. This was Missed Apex Podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.